morning, everybody. Lovely to see you. Welcome to spring. Looks a lot like winter, but um, welcome to spring. Um, Andy's just going to start out by reading today's scripture for us um, before I speak. So, Andy, would you mind just reading Psalm 133 for us? Psalm 133, it says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Wow. Thank you so much, Andy. Brilliant. Good stuff. Well, it's lovely to be with you. I hope you're doing well. Had a good week. Um, Last week, I had the the good fortune of um, being at a Nigerian baby naming ceremony. Um, I don't know if any of you, anybody been to one of those before? It's a wonderful thing where... You get together and uh, you worship and you celebrate and you speak destiny over a newborn's life. It was just a beautiful thing to be there. Um, The only downside for me, um, I was there with with Fortune, the only downside for me is there was quite a lot of uh, worship and songs that I was unfamiliar with that involved clapping and swaying to the beat. Um, So it was beautifully led by a lady from the front and I'm stood next to Fortune and, and partway through he leans across to me and he says, PJ, We've really got to work on your rhythm. Uh, I tell you, I've never felt so white in all my life. Um, it's just, but he's right. He's right because I couldn't do the clapping or the swaying or any of it. I was just, I was lost. But never mind. Um, uh, I wonder. Um, I wonder if you've ever been in a time of need and uh, had someone stand with you, and remember what that feels like. Um, some of you may have remember me sharing this story before, but. Um, I like it, and um, Simon's away on holiday, so I reckon I can get away with it this morning. Um, it was a long time ago, before I worked for the church, I worked as a careers advisor in Bedfordshire, and I was driving home from work one time, and I came up to a roundabout. For those of you who may know, Tavistock Street, there's a roundabout there. I came up to that roundabout, and I stopped because another car was coming onto the roundabout. But the guy behind me didn't stop, and he plowed straight into the back of my car, and shunted me out into the roundabout a little bit. So I was sort of dazed and confused by this, got out of the car, and I was expecting the the guy to sort of come up to me and say, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, um, it was my fault, Um, let's sort things out. Not a bit of it. He gets out of the car, and he's full-on, super aggressive, coming up to me, why did you stop? There was plenty of room, you should have just gone for it, this is all your fault, you're an idiot, all this kind of thing. And uh, he was getting closer and closer to me. I believe the colloquial term is up in my grill. I believe that's, I believe that's the, the term. So he was, he, was, he was up in my grill like this. And um, this is going to come as a shock to many of you because um, I know I like to project this streetwise bad boy image. Um, but somewhere beneath that, I'm a bit of a softy. And um, in a scale of toughness, you know, up the top you would have cage fighters. And then in terms of hardness, it's somewhere down the bottom, the people are like, you know, a bit like blancmange, really. I'm just one notch above that. I'm like Muller Rice. That's how, that's how hard I am. There are set yogurts that are harder than me. Um, so I was in a bit of a bad spot. And I'm thinking this is going to get nasty because the guy was getting angrier and angrier. When all of a sudden, a big 4x4 truck drives up and parks half on the curb and half in the road. And out steps Damien Miller. Now, for those of you who don't know, he sometimes leads worship here, mostly at the university. Um, Damien, on the scale of toughness, he, he, he would be many, many notches above me. 
And he gets out and he sort of shrugs his shoulders a bit like this. And he walks towards us. And he doesn't, he doesn't look at me at all. He's just got this bloke fixed in his gaze, like a predator almost really. It's just like, I'm going after that. So he walks up and he stands next to me by my shoulder. Doesn't look at me at all, just glares at this guy and says, is everything all right, PJ? And do you know what? It was. Um, (laughs) In that moment, everything turned on its head. Um, This guy was like Mr. Angry from Putnam, or sorry if you live in Putnam, but Mr. Angry from Putnam, he was like, he was like on one, he suddenly changes completely. He, he takes a step back and he develops a stammer and starts saying, oh, well, well, I'm, I'm so sorry about this. We need to sort this out. Um, I, I, I guess I better go and get my insurance details. But what was really fascinating was not just the change in him, but the change in me. Because all of a sudden, I grew a spine. And um, I'm like... Right, so I'm shrugging my shoulders, standing up, the chin's out. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty confident now. So I said to him, yes, I think I am going to need those insurance details. And I think I need them right now, thank you very much. The whole thing turned on its head. It was a wonderful, beautiful, exhilarating moment. You could tell why I love telling the story. Moments like that are so rich and so powerful, but I wonder if they're actually quite rare. Because I would say that this sense of standing together and standing with one another in our world at the moment is becoming increasingly uncommon. You know, whether it's the the big macro scale or the micro scale, instead of unity, there's disunity all around us, isn't there? You know, if you look at the global scale, well, you know, the political left and the political right are further apart than they've ever been. I mean, look at the states as one example. Um, You look at the uh, geopolitical situation with... um, Eastern countries and Western countries, so Russia and China and what's going on there and where that leaves the West and NATO, there's never been further apart since the Cold War. And then you look at economics and poverty, where there's the relatively wealthy global North and the relatively poor global South. There's this polarization going on in the world. And it's not just on the big scale, but it's on the the interpersonal scale as well. You know, you hear about people being cancelled because you don't agree with their opinion, you know, which is a Terrible thing. Or I'm reading about long-term dating relationships that are ended by a text message. And you just think, what a state, what a mess. And I would suggest to us that as a church and as Christians, we're meant to call us, stand apart. We're called to stand apart through the quality of our relationships. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I was due to be doing a different talk until Saturday morning when God spoke to me and said, I want you to talk on this. I want you to talk on unity which is fine, but I just wish you'd give me a little bit more warning. Um, But that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Maybe it'll be a bit raw and unpolished, but I hope you get the heart. And the reason I'm speaking on this is I believe the Lord's saying to us that we're living in a reset season, um, particularly in the area of our relationships. And it's a time to fight for unity, to actively fight for unity. It's a time to speak up, but it's also a time to own up. Own up to the stuff that's in our lives. Own up to our judgments or our resentments or our unforgiveness. Those little like, kind of layer of resentment that builds up over time like barnacles on the hull of a ship that slows us down and stops us being all that God's got us to be. To work on us this morning, if you like. So very simply, I want to look at the why. Why should we fight for unity? And then I want to look at the how we should fight for unity. So let me give you the why, first of all. 
The first reason is you can see up there on the screen. The, the why I want us to go for unity and why I believe it's good to go after unity is unity is a posture of the heart that draws favor from God. That's what Psalm 133 says. It's there the Lord bestows a blessing. It's a posture of the heart that draws God's active favor towards us. Um, it, it gives these two references. One is like the oil that pours down the beard. Now, that was the oil of anointing. So it means God anointing or equipping us for different things. And it's this sense of overflow, not just a little bit of anointing oil, but a whole load of anointing oil. And then it gives this other reference to dew, dew on Mount Hermon. And um, that might strike us a bit odd. Oh, we don't know what Mount Hermon is. Well, I've got a photo of it here up, up on the screen. Mount Hermon is one of the largest mountains in Israel, over 9,000 feet tall. And it's on Israel's northern border. And this guy, Richard Donovan, um, he writes about how precipitation, so rainfall, dew, snow, all of that, helped to then feed the Jordan River, which then flowed in and provided water for much of Israel. So there's this sense of blessing that then spreads out to a wider community. It's not contained, it spreads out. And he writes this in the last sentence there. It would not be exaggerating to say that in an arid land, Jew had life-giving potential. Our decisions to pursue unity are about life-giving potential for us and those around us. And in the same way, God's blessing will come down and purify us and bless us and all the people around us. So in times of polarization, I think as the church, we're called to be ever more unified. And it's a decision to stand in unity that attracts blessing, almost like a magnet pulls in metal. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Unity results in blessing. It's, it's a kind of universal pr principle. Those of us who are parents here, um, when are you most inclined to give your children a special treat? Is it A, when they've been knocking seven bells out of each other all morning? Or is it B, on one of those rare moments when the house is quiet and you think, oh, wonder what's going on? And you tiptoe upstairs, open the door, and there they are on the floor, beautifully just playing Lego together or something, or the older one's reading the younger one a book. And you, your heart breaks and melts inside. You think, ah, oh, they, they do love each other after all, despite, <laughs> despite evidence to the contrary. They do love each other. I remember one time um, dropping my boys off at school, and uh, Nathan's the older one and Zachary younger, and Nathan had had his growth spurt, and Zachary was in that stage in his education where the amount of kit they have to take to school with them just seems bigger than they are. So he, he's got a PE bag on his shoulder that he literally could have climbed in and, and gone camping in. That, that kind of stuff. So he's struggling his way up the driveway, and without a word being spoken, they're walking side by side, Nathan just reaches across, grabs his little brother's bag, and puts it on his shoulder. And I'm like, oh, all of the aggro is worth it for that moment. <laughs> they do love each other. And that's when blessing comes. That's when my heart melts, and I want to demonstrate favor towards them. Well, if we as fallible earthly parents want to do that, how much more so is the Lord's heart moved to bless us when we together as God's family dwell in unity? So the question to kind of ask ourselves this morning is, do I want that favor? Do I want that favor in my life? Do I want that blessing? Because if so, then I'm going to need to make decisions to pursue it. If so, it's going to result in cost, but it will, the benefits will far outweigh that cost. 
And if, like me, you've reached the conclusion, I want the favor of God on my life, I need the favor of God on my life, this church needs the favor of God, then we've got to make some decisions to pursue unity. So let me give us some thoughts on how. If you, if you decided, yeah, I want the favor of God, the people of God need his presence amongst them, then how are we going to go about it? Let me give you some quick thoughts. And then we're going to, at the end, spend some time you know, praying together. There'll be opportunity to, you know, for weeping, repentance, gnashing of teeth, all that sort of thing. It's going to be a blast, but we'll do that at the end. But let me give you some thoughts between now and then. Um, the first one is this. If we want to fight for unity, then it's going to require you humbling yourself. James 4, 6 says this. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Again, 1 Peter 5, 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. That's a lovely phrase, isn't it? Clothing, put on humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. These writers here give us two reasons why we should humble ourselves. One is a carrot and the other is a stick. The carrot is God's favor. Unity attracts God's favor. That's one posture, but another posture, humility, also attracts God's favor. So you've got unity and humility, double blessing, twice the favor there. Put the two together and you've got something absolutely dynamite. There's a massive carrot there for us. But the stick is that God opposes the proud. Have you ever really thought about that? That's strong words. God opposes the proud. Be honest for a moment. Can you be maybe a little bit stubborn? Maybe a little bit proud. Maybe like to present a certain knowledgeable image to the world around you. You might use words like, well, I'm just determined, or I'm passionate. But your friends or your spouse would say, mm, really, it's pride. That's why I never or hardly ever ask for help. That's why I blame problems on the other person or the situation, or that I was just tired that day. That's why I rarely apologize for anything. Is there any hint of pride in your life, let me ask you? If you're with a spouse, feel free to nudge them at this point. Is there any hint of pride in your life? Because then if there is, then you need to realize that God opposes you in that area of your life. Think about that for a moment. God opposes you. You know, the all-seeing, all-powerful, all-knowing God, that one, he opposes you in that area of your life, that you might change and humble yourself. So you, the, the carrot is you can have the favor of God or you can have God opposing you as the stick. It's not a difficult choice, is it, when you put it those ways? I'm going to take the carrot every time, thank you very much. And that then means I need to humble myself. And God has a wonderful creative way of putting us all in situations where we need to humble ourselves. Any of us who have got children or ever look after children or help co-parent or whatever it is, you'll know that there are times when you lose your temper and then you have to find yourself on your knees apologizing to a three-year-old. That is humbling, isn't it? Daddy got it wrong again, I lost my temper, will you please forgive me? Humbling ourselves costs us something. And there are three different mindsets that we can adopt that protect that sense of pride that we're going to need to deal with. Uh, I've got them up on a triangle on the screen. It's something developed by a psychoanalyst called Stephen Cartman. And... Um, there are these three postures. The first one is this. I'm right. I think I've got it on that. There we go. It's on that slide. The first one is this. Posture of pride is I'm right. The next one is I'm good. 
And the last one is I'm blameless. And we can bounce around all these three different ones at different times. And they all, all three of them, protect our self-esteem, our sense that I'm good. Um, So if if it's I'm good, it's that sense of, well, I'm the hero in this story. I'm trying to help here. I'm the hero. you're You're the villain. If it's I'm right here, you're wrong, that makes us feel good. It makes us feel justified. Or if it's I'm blameless, well, then you think, well, I'm innocent. The problem is everybody else. The fault is out there. And in doing that, that makes us feel, feel okay. It protects our self-esteem. Except that they're fleeting and they're self-deceiving. Because, of course, no one is completely right. No one is completely good. And no one is completely blameless. And here's the biggest problem I have as a Christian with the message about good self-esteem. And I say this as, as a counselor, as a therapist. The problem I've got is that I don't think it goes anywhere near far enough. You see, as Christians, we've got promises from God that go way beyond good self-esteem. God's will for your life is not that you would have good self-esteem. It's that you would know incredible, eternal, life-giving love from him unconditionally for, forevermore. And then give that love out to others. It's a different order of magnitude. The world says, like, just protect your self-esteem to feel good about yourself. God says, I'm going to love you forever. Sin, warts, and all. I'm gonna, just going to love you forever. And there's going to be a flow of love on my throne that will never cease. I'm gonna, I love you so much, I'm going to write down your name on the palms of my hand. And you're going to be in the Lamb's book of life for eternity. That's where we're, the space that we're meant to live from. Not that I just have good self-esteem. I understand it. I understand why it's relevant for non-Christians. But for us, we've got something of a different order altogether that we can live by. And it's that that gives us the confidence to live. Not that we are good or right or blameless, but that we're loved. And nothing can ever take that away from us. I love the way Colossians 3.23 puts it in the NIV. It says, Paul says of us, that we're holy and dearly loved. I just love that. That we've been made holy by Jesus, not because we've done anything. And we are dearly loved. You're not just loved, you are dearly loved for eternity. And that means when we hit a problem, we don't have to try and shore up our fragile self-esteem because I'm already loved by the king of the universe, so I don't have to defend myself anymore. And I can lay down my mechanisms here, my stances to protect my pride and just say, you know what? I screwed up. A healthy approach to conflict, I would suggest, I've got on the next slide, is this. Instead of I'm right, but instead going, here's how I see it. What am I missing? Because the other person will have a perspective that I don't have in conflict. Instead of I'm good, recognizing that none of us are totally good, confessing my motives are mixed here. And I did some of that because I wanted to appear clever. Or I did some of that because I wanted to look like the, the righteous one. And my motives here are mixed. And instead of I'm blameless, how about, you know what? I've contributed to this. I'm part of the problem here. And I'm going to fess up to my side of it. You see, being loved frees us to be honest. Because my identity, my well-being, is not dependent anymore on being right, good, or blameless. Because that was a false promise anyway. That was always going to be thin ice. And once we've got that posture of humility, then we're in a space to be reconciled to people. Then we're in a place to build unity, really, properly. 
And it's from that space that we can then move towards someone in order to resolve the conflict. Because I want to suggest to you that true unity is rarely found in the absence of conflict. It's not that there isn't conflict there. If you've got people, you've usually got conflict on one level or other. Yeah? Anybody shared a house with their in-laws over Christmas? Yeah, there'll be conflict, won't there? <laughs> Gone on holiday with another family? Sooner or later, there's going to be conflict. Let me illustrate what I mean. Um, if you were to ask me who I'm closest to in the whole world, I'd have to say my lovely wife, Emma. If you were to ask me who have you had the most arguments with, I'd have to say my lovely wife, Emma. I reckon, I've not kept a tally, which I think is probably a good thing, but I reckon we have probably had hundreds of rows over the years. We've been married 26 years. I reckon we've probably had hundreds of rows. We've had the um, just small disagreements. We've had the stand-up blazing row ones. And my, the ones I hate the most, we've had the quiet seething rows in a restaurant or at somebody's <laughs> wedding where you're like, yeah, I hear an amen, sister. Uh, where, like... It's like you're in a restaurant and like you're so angry, like oh, I'm so angry. Why did you do that? And you're spitting mad, but you have to be quiet and calm, yeah? There, I, those are the ones I hate the most. We've also had, and I know this will just be me, it won't be you, but we've also had the the rows on the way to church in the car. We've had those rows where you're in the car together and it, you know, it's all the way to church, and the kids are like got their fingers in their ears and all the rest of it. Then you draw up into the parking space and you get out. You see somebody else in this, hi, how are you? Have you had a good week? Let's go in, praise the Lord together, do all of that, sermon, everything, coffee at the end. Oh, yeah, let me pray for you, brother, sister, back in the car. Rah, 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 rah. We've had those. So how can I say this? How can I say the person I'm closest to in the whole world is my lovely wife, Emma, but the person I've had most arguments with is my lovely wife, Emma? Well, the reason I can say that it's because we've resolved those arguments. Resolved conflict actually can bring you closer to the person. And now we've got 26 years of resolving every argument that comes along. Not apart from, apart from the proper way to load the dishwasher. Um, that one still evades us. And I believe that one day Emma's going to wake up and say, you know what, Paul, you were right all along. But anyway, hopefully that hasn't been recorded. But do you, see, do you see, unity isn't found in the avoidance of conflict. Unity is found in the resolution of conflict. What's made the difference is that we have resolved all those arguments. As Ephesians 4 puts it this way, make every what? Every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And we've had to work at it, and I've had to humble myself time and again. I've had to own up to things I didn't want to own up to. I've had to receive her apology and not be resentful, and I've had to forgive her. But over 26 years, we've built something that's unified. It's the same here in church. We throw ourselves in, and we refuse to allow conflict to separate us. And we know that on the far side of conflict is the resolution of conflict, which draws us closer together. And I, and I want to recognize not every situation can be resolved. There are some situations where it's irreconcilable and we just have to get the best conclusion we can. But I always, in a conflict, want to enter into the conversation thinking I'm going to build the bridge from my side. You know, I'm going to build the bridge from my side as much as I can. I remember um, somebody giving us some marriage counsel and they, they said, um, you know what, guys, it only takes one person to save a marriage. If you humble yourself 
then, there's, then a marriage can, can grow and prosper and thrive. I remember you know, hearing that on a talk, and that's just live with me. I want to build a bridge from my end. So, and I want to say we're a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. Over the past uh, few weeks, I felt God challenged me to have three difficult conversations. So I've scheduled a time. It's not been a corridor conversation or a five-minute conversation. I've scheduled a time to go and see these people and sat down and say, here's what's going on. Can we talk? Here's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? In one of the situations, I actually took diagrams with me. Not sure how helpful that was, but I did take diagrams. I made the mistake of doing all three conversations in one week. So the last one, I lost what I was saying. But the, the heart there was, I'm going to move towards you, not away from you. And we humble ourselves because honesty and humility and forgiveness, that then creates security. And in a world that's increasingly fractious, we get closer together. And that's what causes us to stand out from the world around us. It won't be that our building is nicer than anywhere else. It won't be that uh, we're cleverer than anybody else. It will be the quality of life that we have. It was said of the church in Rome um, that they didn't outthink or out-argue the culture around them in the early days of Christianity. But the Christians in the days of Rome under the Caesars, they simply outlived the community around them. They had a quality of life that was attractive because the spirit of unity was there. So that's how we resolve things with people. We humble ourselves and we move towards them. My final point is this. It's good to resolve arguments and sort things out, but I wonder if it doesn't go far enough. Because that's just restoring what was. I think too, Lord's leading us into building something better. To active unity, if you like. Um, to know what it is to stand with others. Um, some of you will remember me saying, uh, when I was at Sixth Form College, it was um, a weird place in that it was very academic. So some people there went to Oxbridge, uh, but also pretty rough. There were like gangs that would operate I mean, our sixth form, quite tough guys. I'm hearing stories of them beating up bouncers in nightclubs and all sorts. Very difficult place to be. And my friend Mike had managed to accidentally upset one of the members of this gang. I think he'd knocked a car wing mirror in the car park. And um, word had got out around the college that they were at this gang were out to, to get him, some kind of stupid revenge thing. And uh, one day, uh, I remember Mike, my friend, telling me that he went into this sixth form common room. Uh, which were, I guess were probably about half the size of this room. And it had do doors at one end. And it was like one of these cheap kind of temporary buildings, kind of wooden. It had um, cheap lino floor and um, plastic chairs with metal legs and just a basic kind of room. And uh, he went to, quite full of people, he went to join our friendship group. And he sat, they were sat over this way. He went and joined them on the edge of the group um, with his back to the doors. And uh, I remember him saying to me, um, I was sat there, Paul, when um, all of a sudden I became aware that the conversation in the room had, had dulled down and things were going quiet. You ever been in a room where uh, suddenly everything gets a little bit hushed? And he thought, oh, I wonder what that is. And he turned around, his back towards the, towards the doors, turned around, and he saw that this group of guys, this gang, had made their way into the common room. And they were stood, lined out, and they were looking around the room for him. And then suddenly one of them pointed and said, there he is. And everybody in the common room knew what was going to happen. They were going to drag him outside. Um, so Mike said to me, I, I thought I'd better face them. So I stood to my feet, but my legs, legs nearly went from in, inside me. My stomach was churning over, and I turned away from my friends to face these guys. 
And he said in that moment, it went from sort of hush to absolutely silent. He said you could hear a pin drop in that room. And then, as is in times of trauma, everything began to kind of slow down and got, got a bit foggy. And he said, I, I was, it seemed like a long time, but can't have been very long, but I was just aware of them and me and what was about to happen. And in the silence, I could hear a sound. And it was kind of confusing, and I didn't know what the sound was. And then he said, I then became aware of where the sound was coming from. It wasn't coming from across there where the guys were. It was coming from behind me. And then his mind figured it out. He said, oh, I realized in that moment it was the sound of plastic chairs with metal legs scraping across a lino floor as one by one, every one of his friends stood to their feet. This gang of hard nuts all of a sudden didn't like the odds. They backed down and they never bothered him again. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because I think we live in urgent days where there has come and is coming times where we're going to need to stand with one another. Not enough just to have a nice conversation on a Sunday morning and a cup of coffee, great though that is, but actually stand with one another in adversity, in difficulty, in persecution at times. We live in a time where to stand up for Christian values actually means to put yourself in the gun sights. And we're going to need to stand with each other in those difficulties. You know, I, I reckon many of us would probably know what John 3.16 says. But I wonder how many of us would know what 1 John 3.16 says. It says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's the standard on Christian loyalty. Not some kind of superficial niceness, but actually standing with somebody to the point that you would give your life for them if necessary. To love the person on your left or your right in that way, that you would give of yourself to them. To love the person on the row in front of you who you may not know very well, or the person in the row behind who you don't know at all, that you would stand with them and give yourself to them. That's the direction of travel for us as a church. That's the call. Scripture gives us no other permission than to do that. You know, I, I heard this week about a single mom in the church who hasn't had any heating in her home since December because she couldn't afford to repair the boiler. I, I want to say, that's not good enough, is it? We, you know, we... We want to be a church that provides for the single mums in our church, and dads for that matter, for those that are in need. We want to stand with those people in difficulty. We want to stand with those people who are lonely and isolated, and the people who can only see online and never actually, because their physical ailments, can't make it to church. I want to do my best to stand with those people, don't you? Because that's the kind of church that God wants us to build. Not one that's polite and nice, but one that resolves its problems, that's deeply honest, fesses up to where it's made mistakes and stands with one another. That would look like a city on a hill that's attractive to the world around us. In a, in a world of pragmatism and transactional relationships, we can offer something completely different that the, of a different order that the world doesn't know, where we don't fight with one another, but we fight for one another. 
And I just want to gently say to those of us here this morning who maybe we'd feel like we're on the fringe a little bit. I want to say to you, you know what? Attending is great. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're attending this church. But belonging is so much better. And I'd encourage you to move from attending to belonging, to give of your heart into this place, to open up, to to establish friendships, to join a group, to get stuck in, to serve on a team, whatever it looks like, that you might know and be known, that you might belong to a family. So that's my message for this morning, that God would hastily have me write on a Saturday morning, that he's calling us to a different order of relationships where we build the bridge from our side, where we're honest about our own failings, where we get our sense of acceptance and love from the Father himself rather than an image that we're projecting or how other people receive us, and where we don't just be polite with one another, but we actually stand with one another in life's challenges. And if that's you, if something's beating in your heart this morning, then maybe there's a resonance, and maybe that's why God would have me speak on this. And I'd love it if we could just take a moment as we close to respond to the Lord together. Is that okay?